Welcome to another edition of American Student Radio, broadcasting on 99.1 WIUX in Bloomington, Indiana. I am your host, Nadine Henderson, along with Rick Brewer. Hey, Nadine. Thanks for having me. This week, we've asked our producers to get personal and tell us their own stories about mental health, feeling out of place, and the great outdoors. Keep it right here. From Bloom... <laughs> from... Uh, again, live... live... what is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens. Conspiracy. Journalism. And lesbians. Public places are emotionally dynamic. They are colored by the people they're filled with and by the perspective of the observer. But when the mood of the space and the individual are imbalanced, a place can feel out of place. Peeler Berniarski always tries to find the harmony between the mind and the environment, but sometimes they just don't line up. If I was working full-time instead of going to school full-time, if I could leave one job at the end of the day and didn't have to split my time and my mind between five different classes and all the obligations that inevitably follow me home, Even if I'm not that busy, I somehow always feel like I'm working a dozen tiny part-time jobs. If I could just focus on a couple of things instead of what feels like a million. If I could just throw myself into my life and not what feels like an uncomfortably long intro to my life. Maybe it would be easier to empty my mind when I need to. In the meantime though, Public spaces always make me aware of just how much I need to empty my mind. They always seem to be either full of people while my mind is craving isolation or absolutely deserted when I need the stimulation. Walking in packed hallways between classes or cramming into the checkout at the grocery store while the Reese's cups are giving me the side eye. I only wish I could hear my own thoughts over the sheer pressure of the crowd. But scraping home from campus just after the sun sets, strangers would make the sidewalks much warmer. Being mindful means paying close attention to what's happening in the moment. Put simply, mindfulness is about being present. But that's really projecting in public. On public? Being surrounded by strangers can give me that temporary comfort, but my mood is fickle about how they feel around me. Give me my space. Who's looking at me? Nobody really cares what I look like, but what if they do? Especially not the people I'm walking past on the way to class, but what if they do? What if they do? Their minds are all filled with thoughts about themselves, and if I could just feel alone... But what if they do see you? And but guess what, what if they do? But what if they what if they do see you? But what if they do? But what if they do see you? 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 And guess what? They hate you immediately. Mindfulness means noticing what's happening inside your mind and in your body. Mindfulness means being aware of what's happening around you. When you're being mindful, the key is not to label or judge what's happening. Your feelings aren't good or bad. They just are. 
Is it just that I want what I can't have? Maybe I'm running from my mind and I just want my surroundings to comfort me. Is that so bad? I'm thinking about thinking too hard again. Now I'm thinking about how I sure do think so hard about thinking and then so hard about thinking about thinking about thinking and thinking about how I now I'm thinking about how I sure do think so hard about thinking so hard about thinking so hard about thinking about thinking about thinking and first pause and focus on your body. Notice what you see and hear. Also, check what you smell, taste, and feel. Don't label these sensations as good or bad. Just let them go. If I could just leave the school at school. Then narrow your focus. What do you feel in your body? Notice subtle sensations like an itch or tingling. Give each part of your body a moment of your full attention. Start with your head and move to your toes. If I wasn't always thinking about what I'm not doing, what I could be doing, I don't really care. Or do I? If I could slow down, maybe I could figure it out. Next, be more intent on your breath. Where in your body do you feel it most? Rest your attention there. Do I want people around me, or do I want to be alone? Friends are too close to me, strangers aren't close enough. Ask yourself, how am I in this moment? Acknowledge your thoughts and emotions. Spend a few moments with them, being with things as they are. Allow your feelings to be present without judgment. If I could just focus on myself and the moment, get my neurotic mind off the people around me because they'll never be able to give me the presence I need. Every single time I have to remember to detach from all the analysis before I can just be. When your mind wanders, simply return to your breath. There's no need to beat yourself up for losing focus. Audio of public places in this piece came from freesound.org. The information on mind, mind, mind mindfulness came from WebMD, and was read by Google Cloud Text to Speech. For American Student Radio, this piece was produced by Peeler Brynjarski. Have a great day. Mental health is often cast aside. Whether symptoms get worse, or you finally accepted that talking to a professional is worth it. For Tarek Warner, it was a panic attack that happened his freshman year, and it showed him why mental health should be a priority. When I was about 16, I took my first psychology class. It was honestly a really easy class with one of my favorite teachers, so I had no problem in it. However, this is the first time I'd really thought about mental illness. See, we watched a movie called A Beautiful Mind which is partly based on a true story, but to sum it up, it's about this guy named John Nash. He was a brilliant mathematician at Princeton and eventually started working to decode Soviet messages for the Department of Defense. Except, it was all a hallucination. 
his friends, his life, and basically everything John Nash knew was a hallucination. He had schizophrenia. We watched another documentary about this baseball star who developed schizophrenia before he went to college and now has to live under constant medication and watch. These types of films stuck with me. I wasn't a brilliant mathematician, but I was pretty smart. I wasn't a baseball star, but, you know, I did play a lot of sports at an above-average level. Maybe I could get schizophrenia, because one in about 100 people have schizophrenia. That statistic is burned into my memory, because after every time my heart would pound fast, every time my palms got sweaty for some reason, every time I thought I heard something outside, I'd rush to my phone. I'd get on WebMD and look up early symptoms of schizophrenia. I'd take quizzes to see if I was schizophrenic. I obsessed with this, and the whole time it just made me anxious. That was the word I was looking for. Anxiety. In my experience with anxiety, I'd worry for hours about something like if I was schizophrenic, if I had diabetes, if I wouldn't get into any college just by having a 3.7 and fantastic extracurriculars. I'd spend hours on Google or whatever trying to talk myself out of having these things. That the world would be fine. And to be fair, I did feel better after I searched these things, after I researched everything. But it, it, it wasn't healthy. Because once I thought about them again, I'd be right back on the internet to try to show myself that things were going to be okay. I'm much better at these things now. I don't obsessively check WebMD if I have a slight cough. I'm not schizophrenic. And I did happen to get into a very good college at Indiana University. But at Indiana University, the thing that really made me take my mental health seriously was my first panic attack. So in college, in every discussion, you have to do these things called icebreakers. I won't go into detail because everyone knows them, everyone hates them, and that's one thing we can all agree on. But anyway, I'm sitting in some discussion room with some TA who'd probably never see me again if she didn't take attendance, especially since it was my freshman year. I didn't go to class much freshman year. I took this class called Stars and Galaxies, and I went there three times. Syllabus day, midterm day, and final day. I ended up with a C plus, and I thought that was pretty good. Then I did that with calculus, and I got an F, which wasn't so good, but hey, you live and you learn. Anyway, I'm sitting in this discussion, filling out my name, where I'm from, etc. Then I have to turn to these people next to me and tell them what I wrote, and they do the same. Easy. Except that day I was very hot. I remember my hands sweating, and I was just praying that the other student didn't want to shake my hands as we met. Because if they did, they'd feel clammy my hands were, they'd think I was gross or whatever, and hopefully my breath didn't smell. I couldn't remember I brushed my teeth that morning, even though I do that automatically when I wake up. All these thoughts were coming at once. My heart started pounding. I literally thought I was having a heart attack. I somehow listened to what the guy or girl, I don't remember, had to say, and I left the class, went to the bathroom and did the old cold water on the face trick. And my heart was still pounding. Back to Google. So I Googled heart attack symptoms. Why was I, a relatively fit 19-year-old, having a heart attack? I remembered somebody once told me that their dad or grandpa once had a heart attack and they drove themselves to the hospital. I'm pretty sure that sentence ended with, when men were men, so take that story with a grain of salt, but it's what I thought about. So I'm in this empty bathroom, googling symptoms. Sped up heartbeat. Sweaty but chilled. Pain in the chest. Then I got to panic attack. I'd calmed down a little by then. Knowing that you're not having a heart attack can be a decent stress reducer. But I had learned that for the first time, 
what anxiety was, what a panic attack was, and it put a word on feelings that I'd never had a word for or even thought about labeling. And I was sitting in the bathroom by myself. I thought about how I used to think I was schizophrenic, that people would make fun of me if I sweat in gym class, and all these things that were related to anxiety. I wasn't magically cured, but I had a label. And the beating heart stopped, and after about seven minutes, I went back to class, and I finished it out. I do remember them taking attendance, so maybe I actually got to know that professor a little bit, but I, I don't remember. Anyway, I'm better now. I understand the importance of mental health and understanding where anxious feelings come from. And being open when we don't feel comfortable, but also moving past that uncomfort when it's in a healthy manner. I don't Google, am I going to die anymore? And honestly, that panic attack allowed some mental clarity. Because like I said, you can get pretty calm if you find out you're not going to have a heart attack. For American Student Radio, this is Tarek Warner. Mountains are incredible, and beautiful, and tall, and horrifying. Extra emphasis on the horrifying. In this next piece, James Keyes tells us about a 14,000-foot mountain, a run-in with death, and a willingness to do it all over again. I watched my backpack bounce 2,000 feet down the mountain, starting a small rock slide that took about a minute and a half to settle down. That could have been me. In that moment, that's literally all I could think. That could have been me. I had never anticipated being in that position, but there I was, standing on the ledge of a 13,000-foot cliff with absolutely no idea on how to get down. Last summer I picked up everything, and honestly everything was just a couple books and some hiking boots, and I moved out west to Flagstaff, Arizona. I got a pretty sweet gig baking bread and making pizzas on the weekends, then I usually spent the rest of the week up in the mountains. During my first couple days off, I went up to southwest Colorado to car camp deep in the San Juan Mountains. I had my eye on climbing Mount Snuffles, the poster child of the San Juans. I woke up at 4 a.m. to drive to the trailhead. I double-checked my gear and set out on the four-mile approach to the base of the mountain. It was absolutely gorgeous. The crystal-clear blue sky was pierced by snow-capped peaks, rising from a meadow of undisturbed purple and yellow wildflowers. I got to the base of the mountain, ate a cliff bar, and set out on the actual climb. The first quarter mile was some low stakes scrambling through a boulder field. Nothing too crazy. The switchbacks got more and more steep, finally ending at the base of a sketchy 2,000 foot pile of loose rock. I started my ascent of the rock field. It was a one step forward, slide three steps back kind of deal. Each step gave a little bit as rock slid under my weight. That definitely took a while to get used to. But as long as you were careful, it didn't get too bad. After two hours, I had crawled up the rock pile and was finally on kind of solid ground. I headed across the southwest ridgeline, clear drop-offs to my left and right, and reached the final pitch of the climb. This final pitch, which was named the V-Notch, used to be basically a set of really steep rock steps that led to the summit. But by the time I got up there, I guess someone had knocked one of the steps loose, turning the crux into a pretty high-stakes bouldering problem. I circled the final pitch, looking for some way up that looked reasonable, but I couldn't find much. 
I was nervous, but I was also stubborn. I was already four hours into the climb, and the summit was literally within sight, so I just committed. I made it to the top in one piece and cracked open a PBR to celebrate. After taking a couple hundred panorama pictures, I decided I'd head back down. I stood over the edge of the mountain, and my excitement turned to horror. I'd been so focused on getting to the top that I never even thought about getting down. That was a big mistake on my part. I slowly lowered myself down the final pitch of the climb, taking it embarrassingly slow, making three points of contact the entire way down. And then I got to the rock field. I was coming down the opposite side I had come up. It looked like a safer line from the summit, but it definitely wasn't. I slipped on the sharp rock a couple of times before admitting defeat and literally sliding down the loose rock on my butt. It was as graceful as you'd expect. I was sliding down almost uncontrollably, going uncomfortably fast, uselessly trying to recruit my hands to slow me down. I finally clung to a well-rooted boulder and got enough control to stop for a break. At this point, I was only a quarter of the way down. I had a long way to go and had already been on this mountain for five hours. It was exhausting. I decided to get at it again, this time sliding much more slowly and thankfully with minimal rocks down my pants and shoes. And then I got to a ledge. I freaked out. I tried scurrying further to the left to see if I could avoid the ledge, and I found a line that just might have worked. There was a small 8 inch wide ledge that angled down the mountain, sandwiched between a rock wall on the left and a gravel cliff on the right. If I scurried down that, I could get back on route, even though there wasn't really a set route, and start sliding down the last half of the climb. It took about 10 minutes of cursing at myself to get the courage to make an attempt. I threw my backpack down to what I thought was solid ground so I could shimmy down the ledge, and that obviously didn't work. I watched the green backpack as it picked up speed and bounced down the face of the mountain. It was horrifying. One slip up and that could have been me. But in that moment, I took a shaky breath and shimmied down the narrow ledge until I could jump on some flattish ground. Did it work? Yeah. Was it the single most horrifying moment of my life? Absolutely. But was it the most empowering moment of my life? You bet. After eight hours on the mountain, I finally made it back to my car, pants full of rocks, legs full of bruises and gashes. I luckily was able to pick up my backpack once I made it down. There's still huge cuts in the fabric of it from that day, but they always make me smile. Sneffels was the first 14er I climbed, but definitely not the last. I ended up climbing 11 more over the summer, so obviously it wasn't that traumatic. But that feeling is addictive, the feeling of empowerment, of perseverance, and a little bit of self-hatred. This stuff isn't easy, but it's not supposed to be. It makes the summit that much more worth it. It's so overwhelming and inspiring to stand at the base of a huge mountain. But then you take that first step, and then a second, and then a third. And a couple hours later, you're at the top. That's pretty wild. Just remember you gotta get down too. For American Student Radio, this is James Keyes.
You know the feeling of putting something off because you don't have the time or the money? But realistically, you could do those things now. In our next piece, Nora Ahmed explores the horrible habit of idealizing your future self. When I graduated high school, I had this idealized idea of the type of person I would be when I got to college. I also thought by virtue of not being in high school, all of my problems would melt away. I wouldn't be depressed. I wouldn't feel lonely. I know this is an unhealthy way to think. Idealizing your life after achieving a goal or finishing something, it generally doesn't yield the best results. I think most people are familiar on some level with what I'll call the idealized after self mythical self that's only inhibited from coming to fruition by that one pesky roadblock. Of course, for most people, reaching the after is disappointing. People think when they pass the magical threshold, they'll be able to do that one thing that they couldn't do before without putting in real work to change. Or at least, that's the way I am. My idealized after self during high school was happy. It's hard for me to look back on high school and realize how unhappy I was. I had no control over my life. To a closed campus high school with a rigid schedule. There were rude nurses who got pissy when you asked for a tampon and you had to ask to take a piss until the very last day of senior year. Two weeks after my high school graduation, I enrolled in summer classes at community college. In contrast to high school, going to community college felt downright liberating. I wasn't writing papers because my teacher had been bothering me for the past two weeks to turn it in, but because I wanted to. I could have taken the L, but I wanted to write papers about how Neil Gaiman's novels didn't subvert the patriarchal paradigm. I wanted to learn about philosophy and not just because they would call my dad if I didn't show up to class. School felt like a choice I was making, and for a short time leaving high school really did make me happier. When I started at community college, I had exceedingly low expectations. To me, it was just a transition period. So going there and learning things and writing papers I loved far exceeded my expectations of what I thought community college would be like. Going to IU on the other hand, IU has possibly been the most disappointing part of my life. I had this expectation of myself when I would go to IU, I would just learn a new language, I would really dedicate it myself, I'd put in all the effort to become fluent in a really cool language like Arabic or Turkish, not even just Spanish. I came to IU and it was disappointing, it didn't match my expectations, I didn't magically turn into a more studious person with better time management that never uses her phone, that volunteers. I just stayed the same and I started going to IU. I don't like going to school right now and I really hate that. I hate how ungrateful I feel because I'm getting a world-class education that most people in the world couldn't even dream of getting the opportunity to have. 
and I just don't appreciate it. I'm just here to get a degree so I can get some job. 30 years ago, I wouldn't need the degree to have. And I just feel like I'm wasting my time in these classes that don't really teach me anything. They're just there for busy work and most people don't take them seriously. So then the professors don't take them seriously and we're just there to do the bare minimum without really learning, which is horrible. I'm just in school because I feel like I need to be so I can get a job that's not even just a cog in the machine. I feel like the job I'm going to get after school is going to be like this speck of dust on the cog of the machine. So since I'm unhappy at IU, I've just started to really idealize my life after IU. Like once I finish school, I have all of these ideas of like of the type of person I'm going to be, like the types of things I'll do, how I'll dress, how I'll spend my time. So this horrible habit I'm in of idealizing my life after just continues and I hate it so much because those things that I think about that like, oh, once I finish school, I'll just start dressing so stylishly and I'll have amazing time management. And I'll just read all the time and I'll never get on my phone. I could do those things now, but I just, I need that mythology being like, once I finish school, I'll do it. Nora Ahmed. This is Rick Brewer, by the way. I'm taking it from here. Losing a loved one is never easy, especially when the loved one has been there through the hard times. This next piece comes from new contributor Emily Baugh, who recently lost Thomas. He was by all means an exceptional cat and friend. We were sitting beside the bay window in stuffed peach-colored chairs when my mom brought up the mortality of the family cat, Thomas. He was curled up in her lap. His fluffy black and gray striped fur blanketed his large body. His head leaned into her hand as my mom scratched behind his ears. We had been talking about past pets. Since I was born 21 years ago, our family had taken in a multitude of dogs who blessed us until their time had come. Thomas was unique. He was the only cat this family had ever owned. She moved on to stroking her hand along his spine and said, we've lost a lot of pets throughout the years. And while all their deaths were horrible, I think when Thomas's time comes, it will be different, harder than before. As Thomas advanced in his years, his mortality became a familiar topic between my mom and me. Usually I would jokingly pretend to be in denial and state that Thomas will live forever, but that day I said nothing. She continued, he's the one pet that's been with us through everything. Thomas is now dead. Leading up to his death, and even more so afterwards, my mom's statement about his being there with us through everything has never seemed more true. This is my way of commemorating and thanking him. My parents began the journey of divorce as I left grade school. My mom, my siblings, and I moved into a rental as I entered junior high. My mom had to worry about the move, finding a job, the divorce, her children, and her two dogs and a cat. The dogs would be fine. They're dogs. Cats, however, are different. They don't like change. Just changing the type of litter risks them using the carpet instead. 
If Thomas began to slowly ruin the rental, money we didn't have would be taken from us, or worse, Thomas would have to be given up. So as we drove to the rental, I think we all said a silent prayer that Thomas would like the new place. Days passed with no urinary accident. It was never voiced, but I know it was a weight lifted off of my mom's shoulders. Later, we'd moved again to our permanent house. Again, we worried about Thomas's transition, and again, we had nothing to worry about. So for Thomas, I thank you. The rental house was somewhere in between a rundown dump and a nice dump. That's not to say we weren't grateful. It was a perfectly pleasant place to live during our time of need, but that doesn't mean it wasn't a dump. One reason for its dumpiness was the mice. These mice did not stay hidden in the walls, but felt secure enough to venture into our home, another stress added to our already overflowing plate. Soon after the mice showed, my mom woke up to a dead mouse at the foot of her bedroom door. This was quite a shocking achievement for Thomas. He was a lazy, spoiled house cat. We assumed his hunting instincts were long gone in his middle age. I think we all took his newfound killing energy to be him looking out for us. It was easy to determine that dead mice were certainly better than live mice. And dead mice became routine thanks to that fat, sweet beast. Before I continue, some things have to be said for the sake of clarification and exposition. I, like many others, am a victim of abuse. I do not have a desire to share this part of my life at this time. However, in order to understand the gravity and meaning of my beautiful cat's impact on me, some details are needed. 1. I was physically and emotionally abused for about 6 to 7 years. 2. The relationship was one that was inescapable and tainted my home. 3. No one knew for years. And finally, I will not give detailed descriptions of the abuse done to me. What is important to the story is what happened after an abusive incident occurred. After an incident, emotional turmoil twisted my insides to the point of numbness. Loneliness, because no one knew and no one understood. Pain, physical or emotional, the pain leaked out through silent tears. Helplessness, there was nothing I could do to stop it. Hatred, trying to bubble over and let itself loose from my stronghold. And here comes Thomas, swaying his tail and sashaying across my bedroom floor. He lets out a meow at the edge of my bed, asking he be picked up and placed onto the land of comfort that is my lap. I fulfill his request without hesitation. I dive headfirst into the world of holding him, petting him, and scratching his cheeks. I drown my ears with the sound of his purr. He lays on his side and closes his eyes, fully immersed into the drug-like state of my love. I lean down, bury my face in his fur, and cry into his belly. He's a distraction, a blessing, a savior. That's what fascinates me the most. All that Thomas could provide me was the opposite of what I needed from a human. He couldn't hold me and tell me it's going to be okay. He couldn't express his hatred and horror of my abuser and their actions. He couldn't protect me. He was ignorant and unaffected by the situation. He didn't care. It was the best thing he could have done for me. And I don't know if it was because he offered a taste of normalcy in the midst of chaos, or maybe I interpreted his lack of awareness as not judging me. I don't have a good answer, but what I do know is that he gave me an unconditional love that only a pet can give at a time when I needed it most. And for that I say thank you, Tommy Tom, my beautiful boy.
Thomas's decline began with kidney failure, a struggle many male cats face in old age. We kept him going as long as we could, but eventually we had to face the choice of either prolonged suffering or a peaceful death. It's the easiest and hardest choice we've had to make. We prepared Thomas for another transition. We couldn't handle the idea of putting him in a cat carrier for his final moments, so we bundled him up in a thick blanket. My mom prepped me by saying he wasn't going to be the cuddly Thomas I know and love once we leave the house. The thought of my last memory of him would be him being afraid and struggling to get free of my hold was a knife in the throat. I chose a leopard print blanket and began the process of delicately wrapping him up like a newborn. He didn't struggle. He didn't scratch at the blanket. He didn't meow or screech as the car drove to the vet. He was just the cat I've known for almost 22 years. We took Thomas in when I was around five years old. On November 2nd, 2018, Thomas died at 17 years old. For me, there was no life before him, and now he's gone. So to Tommy Tom, Kit Kat, beautiful boy, bunch of crunch, king of the house, Thomas, I thank you for everything. I sure as hell hope I'm ready to move through life without you being here. Siblings tend to share secrets. We all know this, but we don't know it quite like new contributor Victoria Englert. As you'll hear, secrets bonded her and her older brother in ways you can't imagine. The relationship between family members is fascinating. One minute you're an unwilling participant in your conception, and the next thing you know you're coming out of a stranger and expected to love the people around you. There's a natural instinct to bond, I understand, but genetic does not equal commonality, and I find that to be the most true for siblings. They're a part of you. They come from the same person as you do, but most of the time they couldn't be more different. My brother and I were not close growing up. He was dismissive of me in the way that big brothers are, and I admired him the way that little sisters do. Our external differences are evident. He's two and a half years older than I am and three inches taller, and he has brown eyes to my green and red hair to my blonde. He's athletic and lean, whereas I am gangly and small. Our personal differences are even more evident. He's popular and dresses cool, and I am a homebody and dress comfy. His notoriety around our hometown speaks for itself. Everyone knows him, whereas my notoriety was as his little sister, always hidden under his shadow, nameless. My name is Victoria Angler, and for once, we don't need to know his. No, my brother and I were not close growing up, but we always had each other's secrets in our mouths. Of course, little things would slip, like he was the one who put the empty milk jug back in the fridge, or she was the one who scuffed the floor, but never anything real. We had each other's backs against our parents. The agreement was unspoken, but there was a mutual trust and respect. I have to wonder if that's what ran through our blood as siblings, two guards protecting a fortress of Englert sibling discrepancies and classified information. We never sat down with each other to specifically tell each other our secrets. Sometimes they spilled off of inebriated tongues or we caught each other in the moment of the crime. We never set off to talk to each other, but our secrets always had a way of finding each other's eyes and ears. For years this went on, covering for one another without having to ask, two kids automatically playing the defensive side. It got to the point where my brother figured out how to manipulate me. He changed the rules of our unspoken agreement. 
The flow of trust and respect between us had run cold. I didn't know this yet. I was still protecting someone who was only interested in protecting his habits. When I was 16 and he was 18, we were coming home to Cincinnati after visiting our mom in Bloomington. A two and a half hour car ride and my brother could barely keep his eyes open behind the wheel. I had no idea why he seemed so sleepy. I tried music and coffee to keep him up. I couldn't drive and he was my ticket home. He kept nodding off and veering, waking up every time his wheels went over those divots in the road. This felt like a secret I had to keep. The lull of farmland turned into city and he headed away I wasn't familiar with. We headed further into the heart of Cincinnati than towards our home in the suburbs. I knew he saw my anxious face. I knew he saw me looking out the window wondering where we were. He wouldn't answer me. And this felt like a secret I had to keep. We pulled into an auto zone and he told me to stay quiet. He said, I'm meeting some people, just relax. I was not relaxed. I knew what we were there for, and I asked him, do they know that I'm going to be here? And he said no. I stayed glued to my seat. This wasn't the first time he had driven me to meet a drug dealer, but he would usually leave me with an ice cream cone and crack the window to park outside of a trap house. I'd never been face to face with one before. I had no idea what to say. In hindsight, something along the lines of what the actual fuck are you thinking might have been a good question to propose to my brother. My hands felt clammy and I was terrified, but I was also excited. What a secret to keep from my parents, and what a story to tell to my friends. I was going to be a part of something illicit, and it felt liberating. Despite the fact that I was an unwitting participant in this act, and I wasn't actually going to be doing drugs. This felt like a secret I was excited to keep. The guys pull up in the car next to us on my brother's side. My bad girl confidence surge was gone. I stared straight ahead and kept my breathing limited, careful not to make eye contact or make a sound. The window rolled down and rap music flowed out, filling our car with the bass. I kept staring straight ahead at the neon auto zone sign. The light for the second O was out, and I just focused on trying to pronounce it in my head. Autozen? Or autozen? Anything but look at the dealers so I could never identify them. One of the guys shouts out the car to get my brother's attention. I tense up but stay still. He says, why are your headlights on? Are you looking to get caught? The fuck is wrong with you? The dealers went on to lecture my brother on how to be a better buyer. This went on for a few minutes and they didn't seem to notice the irony in that. My brother said, put that away. You're not going to shoot a white kid in an auto zone in Cincinnati, are you? I don't think anyone has ever clenched their butthole tighter than I had in that moment. My eyes shifted to the left as much as they could. I couldn't see a gun, but that didn't really loosen me up at all. The dealer starts ranting at my brother. That's besides the point. You gotta wise up. More and more of you are getting picked up off the streets, and that means that there are gonna be more of you who are talking to the police. We can't be playing that game out here, man. This shit's serious. And hey, he stops his rant for a second. The fuck is that? Is that a fake person? It was quiet. The question sunk in. What does that even mean? Was he talking about me? Am I the fake person? Was he trying to send me into a teenage existential crisis in that moment? I glanced at my brother who turned to me with the goofiest grin on his face. I was still frozen in place, but he was ready to make a scene. My brother announces casually to the drug dealers, that's my little sister, dude. 
I turned slowly to look at them and give them a little wave. They looked about what I had pictured in my head. Young guys in sweats and an all-black car. Not too nice, but not too crappy. The one dealer in the passenger seat who was doing all the talking was holding a gun. Not necessarily at us, but just leaning it against the bottom of the open window. Believe it or not, I was still not soothed by this. He dragged out, Man, the fuck is wrong with you? You bring in your little sister and shit? That's fucked up. She doesn't need to see this shit. My brother said, She's cool. And suddenly, I was cool. It's like I did this all the time. A seasoned passenger to drug deals in an autos in parking lot. I'm cool. I repeated meekly. Exactly the opposite of someone who is cool. My brother added, Are we going to do this or not? And he tosses over a wad of cash through the window of their car. They threw what looked like a rolled up straw wrapper through the window and it fell between the cracks of the seat. My brother peeled out of the parking lot and had me search for the straw wrapper. I found it and inspected it with my fingers. The paper was thicker and waxy. A little package tied together with a thin rubber band. My brother chuckled about how those guys were idiots and grabbed the paper out of my hand. I didn't know what was in there at the time. He told me that they were lecturing about him getting caught, but they wasted so much time on him that they didn't take into account how much longer they would have to be there. They were going to get themselves caught. I asked what he meant by that, and why did they have to stay? He said, didn't you see all those other itchy white kids hanging around there? Those guys decided to do all those deals at one place in one time, and he smirked. Didn't you notice? If you're this observant for the rest of your life, you're going to miss crucial details. This wise sentiment might have had a larger impact on me if my focus weren't directed on the gun pointed in my direction. This felt like a secret I had to keep. Until now. Mom, I hope you never hear this. Victoria Englert. Our show this week was produced by Peeler Berniarski, Tarek Warner, James Keyes, Nora Ahmed, Emily Ball, and Victoria Englert. Our hosts for today's show were Nadine Henderson and me, Rick Brewer. Mixing, mastering, and management from the one and only Emily Miles. Our team also includes Abby Gibson, Jack Bassett, and Sheila Raghavandran. American Student Radio is a student-run audio storytelling group at Indiana University in Bloomington. We broadcast new shows every Sunday at noon on 99.1 WIUX and on our podcast. Find us wherever your ears listen to podcasts. Our theme music comes from Lunamatic. Special thanks to our advisor, Amy Gastelum. You can follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice or find us on Facebook and Instagram. We'll be back with more stories next week.